Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another excellent interview episode where we track down the best and brightest thinkers in the spirits and cocktail communities and pick their brains about their specific areas of expertise. This time around, I had the pleasure of sitting down with author and historian Garrett Peck to discuss the causes, proximal effects, and long-term ramifications of prohibition, a.k.a. the Volstead Act, which is a piece of legislation that still affects the way we make, consume, and talk about spirits and cocktails in the United States to this day. We've been getting some email requests recently asking for more historically focused episodes, so I think this interview is going to make a lot of listeners out there very happy, but before we jump in, I do have one important update for you. At long last, the Kickstarter page for the Essential Tasting Journal for Spirits and Cocktails is live. If you're a first-time listener, this is a really awesome tasting tool that we've been working on that can really help you train and refine your palate when it comes to tasting and then communicating those tasting notes about your favorite spirits and cocktails. You can learn all about it by visiting cocktailtastingjournal.com or by heading over to our Kickstarter page where you can watch a video in which I review the most important features and perks. Kickstarter is also the place to go to pre-order your signed first edition copy. For only 20 bucks, you can be the first to get your hands on the Essential Tasting Journal and because it's already in active production at a factory, right here in the USA, we'll 100% have this in your hands in time for the holidays. So if you're thinking about giving it as a gift, which is a great idea, we've got you covered. We'll have links to the Kickstarter page and the Cocktail Tasting Journal website over on the show notes page for this episode. But for now, I think this is, yeah, this is the part of the episode where you get to actually make yourself a drink. This week's featured cocktail is the Scofflaw Cocktail, which is a Prohibition-era classic. To make this drink, you'll need the following ingredients. One and a half ounces of rye whiskey, one ounce dry vermouth, three quarters an ounce fresh lime juice, one half ounce grenadine, and one dash of orange bitters. We, of course, like to use embitterment orange bitters. Combine all these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, shake it well, then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass. Traditionally, with this cocktail, garnishes and citrus juice have been a bit fluid. Sometimes lemon, sometimes lime, sometimes an orange twist, sometimes a different garnish. So keep that flexibility in mind as you craft your Scofflaw cocktail. We do cover this strange Manhattan slash whiskey sour hybrid in greater detail later on in the episode, but one thing to keep in mind is that it was invented at Harry's Bar in Paris, a place that seems to keep popping up in our episodes more and more often these days. And with that lingering suggestion, let's return 
to our historical tour through the booze and bullet-riddled landscape of prohibition. Some of the topics that Garrett Peck and I cover in this conversation include how Garrett evolved from a casual weekend tour guide and cocktail enthusiast to a successful historical author, the events and forces that paved the way for prohibition, including the temperance movement, World War I, and many strains of racial and economic strife in America, how the Volstead Act worked, and why it was sort of a bait and switch for the American people, especially those who enjoyed a good stiff drink. The ins and outs of everyday life during Prohibition, including bootlegging, rum running, bathtub gin, and speakeasy design. The fascinating story of the man in the green hat. Why Prohibition still affects the laws and sentiments concerning spirits and cocktails in the U.S. all these years after its momentous repeal. And much, much more please be sure to head on over to the show notes page where we link to all of Garrett's books. He's also launching a book on World War I in the coming month, so if you want to get a larger international picture that sets the stage for Prohibition, I also encourage you to pick up a copy of that as well. But for now, here's what I want you to do. Head down that alley over yonder. Go down the basement steps on your right. Knock twice on the door, then once then twice again, and when someone answers, tell them that the man in the green hat sent you. And that's just a silly roundabout way of saying, I hope you enjoy this fascinating historical trip through Prohibition with author and historian Garrett Peck. Garrett, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Eric. Yeah. So... Can you just introduce yourself, tell people a little bit about who you are, what you do, and um, maybe just introduce how you started writing about the things you write about? Yeah. Uh, my name is Garrett Peck, and I am an author, historian, and tour guide in the Washington, D.C. area. And I've written now seven books. My seventh one is just about to come out. In fact, by the time everyone hears this, it's probably out already. And it's called The Great War in America, World War I, and its Aftermath. And uh, kind of my specialty in writing is prohibition. It, it's such a fascinating topic. It's, it's just endly, endlessly mineable. Um, I have to say there's not, like, not a month goes by I don't get asked to like give a talk or something like that or an interview like this, such as this one <laughs> about prohibition. It's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> I, I, I just think everyone is so fascinated by this entire topic of like, oh my gosh, what was the country thinking? They were simply going to ban alcohol and Americans were going to stop drinking, you know? Yeah, it's it's kind of turned into almost like a thought experiment that mm -hmm. was not kind of relegated to the mind. Mm -hmm. That's the way we look at it right now. Yeah, and we also romanticize it, which we shouldn't do because there was a great deal of criminal law breaking. A lot of people did, in fact, die. And a lot of people went to jail and corruption and bribery were running rampant, which, you know, those those things undermine the American democracy. Mm -hmm. But yet, you know, here we are a century later, we're like, oh, yeah, Prohibition, let's get those suspenders on and those curly mustaches and right. make some cocktails, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you started giving tours and writing these books. Was that a hobby that kind of got more serious as time went on? How did that happen? Yeah. I started off, I had this idea for a book, which I came about at my grandmother's house at, Chris, in, at Christmas in 2003. And I come from a long line of Methodists, and I brought a really nice bottle of wine, a French Burgundy, to dinner. And okay. This was in Scottsdale, Arizona, at my grandmother's place. And so it was myself, my mother, and my grandmother. And my grandmother just got a little bit snooty about the fact that I'd brought this bottle of wine 
for Christmas, right? You, it's what you drink. And uh, she was like, oh, you know I don't drink. You know, she got a little snooty about this. And I thought, wow, that's really weird. My mom and I both drink. But like, why, wasn't, why was this generational value that she held, she was born in 1913, that didn't get passed on to the rest of us? So she lived through the entire Prohibition era. And as good Protestants were, we were taught to feel ashamed about drinking. And so, in fact, after she died, we found a liquor cupboard in her kitchen. But it was always very much like, don't let anyone see you drinking because they'll think you're a drunk. And so it came with a heavy amount of social stigma. And that was the genesis for my first book, which was called The Prohibition Hangover. That came mm-hmm. out in 2009. And then the sequel to that was a local book, a, a kind of a guidebook of, called Prohibition in Washington, D.C., How Dry We Warrant. So I kind of wrote it with a little, little tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. <laughs> but um, parts of the process of trying to get my, what's called your platform, that is your, your credentials, what, what qualifies you for writing a book. And I, I mean, I spent my career working in telecom and here I am, you know, 2003, trying to like pitch a book about alcohol and, and all the publishers are like, you know, you're not qualified to write this, right? So uh, it took six years to get the book out. And part of the things that I came to was becoming a tour guide. I started, well, I first started writing a lot of articles for the trade that helped a lot. And then also I became a tour guide. So the very first tour I set up is called the Temperance Tour. And it's of Prohibition-related sites in Washington, D.C. We actually have a temperance fountain right downtown, which is really cool. So that's where we start. And things kind of took off from there. I discovered I love leading tours. It's, it's a lot of fun. And you get, essentially, you get to teach, uh, but without a test or anything like that. And you have happy hour at the end of it, which right. is nice. And, and it's sort of like <laughs> self-selected students also. So you don't have that, you know, those, those students in the back row just kind of spacing it, out. It's, it's largely adults who want to be there, yeah. you know, because they like the topic. And we get to show them really cool sites that they've all walked past but not really noticed before, right, and, and put new context on them. You as a tour guide, you are interpreting the site for them. You're, you're curating it for them and showing them, you know, here's an important piece of history. You've noticed this, this before, but here's why it exists and why it's important. Mm, I like that, and curating a site. Yeah, yeah, it's basically what you're doing when you lead a tour, right? You're picking out the sites for the, for the group and then taking them around. So it's your choice as the guide to figure out what you're going to do on the tour and where you're going to take them and what's the theme that you're going to cover and how it's all relevant. Okay, so I like how you're sort of using this tour as a way to gain credentials. Mm -hmm. Um, I I can totally relate to the whole publishing thing. (laughs) I recently walked into a bookstore in D.C. because we're publishing a... A podcaster walks into a bar. Yeah, (laughs) a a podcaster walks into a bookstore and says, where's all your books on tape? I don't know where that's going. (laughs) But I walked into this bookstore and... I, I wanted to show them some of the wireframes of this tasting journal for spirits and cocktails that we're publishing. And it's not quite stationary because there's a, a lot of introductory content in it. So there's there's actually a lot of writing involved. And she basically, this manager who, who I set up a meeting with was like, oh, you're self-publishing. And so it was like this, all of a sudden, this night and day thing like, oh, you have absolutely no credentials. And I realized that I had completely approached the situation incorrectly. And I definitely sympathize with the impulse to like build your credentials in this way. So you started giving the tours and then you published a couple of books. And what happened between then and now? Like how do, how do, we, how do you bring us up to present day and, and the, the project that you're currently working on and yeah. finishing up? Yeah, it's, I, I kind of specialize in local history, although my current project is, an, is a national book, which I'm really, really excited about that and got a big New York publisher for that one. So I'm just like, Yay. congrats. So yeah, really, really excited about that. 
and uh, getting that book out in time for the centennial of the armistice, which is Veterans Day, which is it's a big deal. World War One is the most idealistic war the U.S. ever got involved in, and unfortunately, it, it erupted into a huge partisan squabble during the peace process afterwards. And so, largely, the country wanted to forget about all that. So, World War One is really this overlooked war, even though it is the most important war of the 20th century. World War II is, I wouldn't say just, but it is the bloody sequel where they had to rehash all the issues that weren't resolved in the first war. Only the bad guys were really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And we were the good guys. Right, right. So, yeah, it's just, it's a fun process. I've been kind of putting out a book about one a year or so. This book took me about three and a half years to produce because it's a big national book. And okay. it's, oh my gosh, it was a research intense, you know. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, but World uh, War One is getting a lot more attention. I think recently Dan Carlin, I don't know if you're familiar with Hardcore History, which is a really good podcast. He just published a really in-depth series of podcasts on uh, on World War One, so um, that's gotten gotten a lot of people really interested in it, mm-hmm. and um, I mean, I'm definitely excited because before I had listened to that, I probably fall into one of those, I guess, American public school educated comas that takes place mm-hmm. between the Civil War and World War II when you're learning about U.S. history, where they're mm-hmm. like, okay, there was Theodore Roosevelt somewhere in there. He yeah. was interesting. Yeah. And now we're at World War II. Yeah. Oh, and the Great Depression. We have in the middle. And, right. and that's about all you learn about it. So it's it's really skipped over, mm-hmm. even though it's hugely important for for our foreign policy, even to this day, it's called Wilsonian diplomacy after the president of the time, President Woodrow Wilson. And that's essentially, it's about advocating for democracy abroad. Mm-hmm. And that comes about because of the war. And that's still with us even today. So the Iraq war, for example, is an extreme example of that, where we toppled a government that was not ready for democracy. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Uh, yeah, still with us even to this day. It's it's really crazy when you think about United States history. And obviously, you're, you're an expert. Your background is history. And so... I want to keep the, the focus of this episode kind of historically based, but I, I want to preface our discussion of prohibition by, by making the point that here in the U.S., I don't think we realize how little history we have when it's compared to the sweep of something like world history with these, with these countries that have such a long written history that, that predates us. And I think one of the effects of that is exactly kind of what you were alluding to with the the story about your grandmother, because you had a living connection. There were there was literally one generation connecting you to somebody who experienced this thing that that we we look at today as just back ages and ages ago. Prohibition, mm-hmm. we look at it as almost this archaic time period, and yet you're coming at it with this personal connection with somebody who actually lived through it. And so I think going back deep into our history is, is something that, that we look at a little bit different than some other folks in the world look at. And I don't think we're, we realize as Americans how directly we're still impacted by something like prohibition that mm-hmm. happened 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. We do have, actually, I think a lengthy history in our country. I, I think once people start diving deeper into it, um, I, I do lead tours of Europeans to this country, and I reassure them that, in fact, there are many old things in the United States. You know, they always, like, say, there's nothing old in the U.S. And in fact, you know, we go walk through Old Town Alexandria, and, and people are always impressed by it because it's, you know, 1749. And, and I point out the Pueblos out in New Mexico. Some of them are over 1,000 years old, and they're mm-hmm. still continuously inhabited. It's like, yeah, we do have, in fact, old, old stuff here in this country, so, which, which is really cool. So, but, you know, 
Um, just kind of thinking about history itself and how we perceive history, uh, looking, for example, at the Civil War, how Southerners, I think Southerners are finally like shaping, reshaping, reexamining how they've looked at the Civil War and kind of moving away from, from the lost cause mythology. But like, you know, the great Southern uh, novelist, William Faulkner, and he had said that in the South, the, the past, um, the past, is, what was the exact phrase here? It's like the past um, isn't the past. In fact, it's, we're still essentially living in the past, even, mm-hmm. even to this day. That's, sure. a, that's a paraphrase of the, of the exact quote. But yeah. it's just remarkable that the, you know, people still look backwards to their time and look upon that as the glory days. Right. Rather than, gosh, today is actually, our times right now are actually pretty awesome, I think. Right. Well, a great example of that would be one of the programs that I think we most associate with Prohibition, which is like Boardwalk Empire. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've seen that. It's, mm-hmm. it's the, um, the Steve Buscemi and um, it just really romanticizes this time period. And I think we, we like to watch it. But but as, as you said earlier, there was some, some not great stuff going on. So what I was hoping we could do is talk about kind of the three parts of prohibition, the part directly leading up to it and how it sort of got rolling, the kind of meat and potatoes of prohibition, kind of the rules, the things that happened as a result of the Volstead Act. And then maybe as we wrap it up, think about the aftermath. And I, as, as you say in your book title, the hangover of prohibition. Mm-hmm. So how did it get started? Yeah. Prohibition actually got started through the temperance movement, which was this century-long social reform movement that initially wanted Americans to shift away from liquor and have them drink wine and beer, but that more radicals took charge of the movement and decided that temperance meant abstinence. And that was by the 1830s. And so they pushed for the social reform movement all the way through the Civil War, and uh, they used the moment of World War I as their opportunity to foist the 18th Amendment upon the country. Um, the key thing that happened, and you really got to view prohibition as a World War I outcome because of the war itself. Well, the biggest ethnic group in the country in the United States at the time were the German Americans, who were also the brewers. And we declared war against Germany in 1917. So the, the main temperance lobbying group was called the Anti Saloon League. So they used this moment to basically spin treat beer drinking into treason and pointed out that all the Germans can't be trusted. They've got a fifth column in our country and whatnot. And by the way, we need to save grain for the troops so, so we can go beat the Kaiser's army. And the country bit into that big time. It was a huge period of super patriotism. And everyone thought, oh, yeah, great. Yeah, we got to beat the Kaiser's army. Let's save grain for the troops. Yeah, let's ban alcohol. That's great. No one really thought of the consequences. <laughs> and so most of the country just kind of lined up behind this. Um, it sailed through Congress, and Prohibition actually passed the 36th state to put it over the top, ratified it two months after the armistice. So that is January 16th, 1919. And this is completely after all that whole Kaiser grain situation had become it, it, obsolete. Yeah, I mean, they were ratifying the amendment during the war, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so everyone was thinking, yes, we got to do this for our, for our American patriotic duty. We, we, we need Prohibition. And most Americans, once they got actually into Prohibition, they thought, oh, wait a second. I thought we were just banning liquor. I thought we'd still have beer and wine, right? Mm. And beer was the national beverage before Prohibition started and, sure. and still is. Sure. It's still our, our favorite alcoholic beverage in the country. And so right away, there was sort of a, huh, 
I didn't realize zero tolerance was going to be our policy going forward. So the, the public immediately took kind of another look at this. And pretty soon the cynicism stepped in because people, once they got over the whole war, war fervor, and it was like, oh, wait, you, you mean I can't have my beer again? Oh, wait, that's messed up. And then yeah. bootleggers start popping up and resupplying the market, but not with beer. Rather, they're bringing in fake scotch and bathtub gin and fake bourbon and, and, and whatnot. So it very quickly bred cynicism in the American public. Yeah, I can see why. So a couple of follow-up questions on that. Was the expectation that it was just going to be spirits that were banned and not beer and wine, was, that, was there a little bit of misleading on the part of the politicians who, who kind of sold this to the American public? Or was there maybe an expectation that it wasn't going to be long lasting because like as you said like well if the, if one of the big justifications was that we were doing this to you know save grain for our our army fighting the kaiser then once that goes away then maybe the need for this goes away uh, I, i'm not quite sure it just doesn't it seems like something's off a little bit yeah it, it it was intended to be permanent obviously because they changed the constitution okay they didn't just change a law they changed the constitution to ban the manufacture sale and transportation of quote intoxicating liquors and then then you needed the Volstead Act to define what intoxicating liquors are or were and that's where the anti-saloon league stepped in and effectively wrote the law to say anything above 0.5 percent alcohol is intoxicating and that's where people were like oh that's what you meant you know much more strenuous than many people thought so again they thought they were going to be banning distilled spirits but they'd still be able to have low, low alcohol beverages like like beer which was you know, the, the brewers before all this were trying to espouse beer as a temperance beverage. The movement was not buying that. But, you know, hey, we sell beer at 4.5%. You know, um, it's family friendly and, and, and so on. And, but the temperance movement was, had zero tolerance towards any alcohol at all. So they went out on their vision of, of prohibition and of, and, of, and of temperance. And thus we got this extreme version of prohibition. Okay. That, I mean, that's interesting. So it seems like there was almost like this cognitive dissonance thing going mm -hmm. on where people were kind of at the beginning when the idea was being tested and pitched, they were like, yeah, sounds good. It, it's for the war. We got to sure. do this to, to, to win the war. And then one, once they were like, and here's the bill, they were like, ooh. Oh, gee, that's what it is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so the American... We didn't realize we were signing up for that. So did the know? American people have a whole... I mean, obviously, in our indirect democracy, like, we have control via the people that we elect, but did the American people really have any control after this kind of extreme version of prohibition was created to step in and say, whoa, 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 no? They did, in fact. Um, they didn't have a chance to stop it at, at all, but uh, certainly by, by 1920 when it started, uh, Wayne Wheeler, who was the, quote, legislative superintendent, meaning the, the chief lobbyist at the ASL, uh, noted in 1920 when he met with a bunch of congressmen, they were all up in arms. They were like, what do you mean you ban beer? Um, you know, he, he mentioned he had over 300 congressmen who were all coming to him who had all voted dry, and yet all their constituents were like, dude, what do you mean you, you ban beer? Like, why can't we have beer? Okay. And so he really had to, to hold them to the line, the fact that this was meant to be a dry amendment and also a dry law going forward. But they heard, they, again, they heard it from the constituents immediately in 1920 that this was too extreme. Okay. So we've got temperance, we've got the anti-saloon league, and the saloon, you know, going back to the 1800s, of course, is a very important place 
for, I guess, American drinking culture. It's where a lot of these early cocktails and the proto cocktails that predated them were created and sold to the masses. And it's also a very male space. Mm -hmm. And so the the temperance movement, as I understand it, was a a very female um, movement in terms of Um, The fact that the values that it was espousing were to kind of create stronger families and do do better toward women and sort of vilified the sporting fraternity and and, and the people who were were kind of the prototypical saloon goer, I guess. Is that correct? Yes. This was a progressive movement, and they had a legitimate point about a a lot of this. the immigrants could, in fact, especially immigrants who were working in in cities, um, you had a lot of corruption going on because, in fact, you the political machines controlled the saloons, and thus they could simply just pass out patronage from the saloons. And that was a key reason why they wanted to shut down the saloons right there. There was also the fact a lot of women were involved in the temperance movement themselves because they had experienced domestic violence. And that's that's totally legitimate, by the way. Right. So this was a way of protecting families and ensuring that the workers weren't spending all their money on alcohol when they should be providing food for their families and shoes and clothing and all that kind of stuff. So that, that also got wrapped up into the whole propaganda behind the whole thing of protect the family, vote for pro- prohibition, and, and so on, and seeing the pictures of a mother holding a baby and stuff, all designed to like you know, pull your heartstrings and force you to pull that that lever to vote in favor of it. Yeah. So it seems like a good way to sum it up was that prohibition was an idea that was well marketed by extremists. Mm -hmm. And then I won't necessarily say extremists. They were progressives. Okay. Right. They, they saw the power of the federal government to improve American society. We we look upon non-drinkers today as being conservatives, but they were, this was, this was, Left-leaning. I mean, they really wanted to make American society better by using the power of the government. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, this is how we ended up with Prohibition. And I'm interested in the time frame that it took for things to go from essentially no Prohibition, right? Everything's on the table, to the... I guess, type of America that is portrayed in Boardwalk Empire. So how quickly did people respond to Prohibition and how drastically did they respond? Mm -hmm. It really depends on where you were in the country, especially if you were in a city, like a multi-ethnic city. All these different ethnic groups, the Catholics, the Jews, the Germans, whatnot, they were all basically swept aside with Prohibition uh, because Prohibition was targeted at them. Basically, right? The German Americans, the brewers. Um, you had this huge wave of immigrants who would come into the country, and they all brought their drinking habits with them. So mm. you had Eastern Europeans, Russian Jews, tons of Catholics, right? So prohibition was, you know, very tut tut. And these people understood that, and therefore they weren't really going to obey this law because they realized they recognized it was targeted at them. And if you lived in a city, it was almost as if it didn't happen, <laughs> except in a couple months. I mean, I, I've read New York Times articles four months after New York, after Prohibition had started nationally where uh, one investigative journalist went around and was just like, oh my gosh, I just found dozens of dozens of saloons and, and, and restaurants and so on that are still serving alcohol. It's as if Prohibition doesn't even exist, right? And even though the, the uh, Prohibition Bureau is out there staging raids and whatnot, people immediately recognize they could still get alcohol. 
Um, you have someone like H.L. Mencken. We'll talk about him a little bit later on. Yeah, for sure. With cocktails. But uh, he had actually stockpiled his cellar. He, he, he had an automobile. He sold off of his car so he could stockpile his cellar full of liquor, thinking, this is going to be it. I'm never going to have another opportunity. But he said, you know, within a couple months, uh, there were quite a number of, quote, booticians, as he called them, bootleggers, <laughs> booticians. I it? like it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> he was very clever, that man was. And immediately they started popping up and they provided a ready supply of alcohol for him. And he was like, oh, I guess I didn't need to make all this big stockpile after all. And so he, he drank throughout Prohibition, pre- predominantly beer. He was mm-hmm. a beer drinker. But uh, it's just kind of a rem- remarkable how quickly the market responded to this. Uh, the way I look at Prohibition, all it really effectively did was to deregulate the alcohol market. That's it. Um, and if you look, if you remember like Economics 101 from college, you have the, the demand curve and the supply curve. Mm-hmm. By looking at the 18th Amendment, it, all it does is address the supply side of the equation. It's banning the um, transportation, manufacture, and supply of alcohol. That, that's it. It never deals with the demand side of the equation. Why do Americans want to drink? Or for that matter, why are Americans today taking opioids, right? You cannot just take away the supply. You have to address why Americans are choosing to break the law or choosing to, to use heroin or drink beer or, or whatever, right? That, yeah. That's always going to be there, right? There's always going to be a market, always. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it seems like, you know, a more moderate approach might be to say, hey, how can we, you know, shrink that demand mm-hmm. as opposed to just completely cutting out the supply? Yeah. yeah. Uh, knowing Scan- that one follows another, right? Mm-hmm. The Scandinavian approach is heavy taxes. Yeah. You know, you, you'd be broke if you were a drunk there because it's, it's so expensive to buy a beer. Uh, I was in Iceland uh, two years ago and a typical beer you'd buy at a bar. They have a great crap brewing scene, by the way, but the typical beer there was $13. Like you go out to dinner, you have one. Yes, yeah. you can't afford to have a second one. Wow. Know? Yeah. And it's all tax. Yeah. And uh-huh. so the government <laughs> then, you know, benefits. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They redistribute it. It's a social democracy. So very typical for Scandinavia, right? For sure. Yeah. So you, we were talking about how quickly the market responded here. What were some of the things, some of the innovations that occurred that people came up with to start... I guess, scratching their itch again or, or help their neighbors to, to start scratching their itch. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite a number of things popped up. There were a lot of loopholes written into the Volstead Act. So suddenly everyone got into homemade wine. So, yes. Yeah, one of, the, one of the big loopholes was that this was actually given away for both the Italian immigrants who tended to make their own wine anyways for home consumption and also for Midwestern farmers, so people who had a lot of fruit. They preserve their fruit, you know, through canning and whatnot. And if you have fruit juice, if you crush it, let it sit there for a couple of days, if it's an apple, it'll turn into apple cider. And it's 3 to 4%. It's low alcohol. Yep. And they recognized, okay, everyone's got a right to produce 200 gallons of preserved fruit juice every year, as they called it. And, of course, everything naturally ferments. And then there came, out, came about a couple of different companies, for example, Vine Glow out of California. So the, the grape growing industry actually boomed in California. They, the wine industry was crushed, but no pun intended there. Sorry, that was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> but they, um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, everyone. <laughs> but they, all, the, all these farmers began planting grapes, even cheap grapes, right. because they could then be packaged up in bricks as, as raisins. And then 
they would then be shipped to people's houses as these bricks. And then the mm-hmm. instructions were written on right on the package of Vineclo as a warning. It mm-hmm. said, warning, do not take this package and add sugar and add water and let sit for a week. Otherwise, you will have a fermented beverage. Right. So the warning was the instructions about how to make wine. Right, and right, right. <laughs> really, very clever. Right. Yeah, I love that. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> also, there was this prescription writing mm-hmm. situation, right? Where people could actually get prescriptions for alcohol. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So one of the big loopholes in the Volstead Act was for medicinal whiskey. So you had all these distillers that still existed. They went out of business basically, but they had these rickhouses just full of barrels of bourbon. And so what each doctor could prescribe a certain number of pints every month, like 20 pints or something. And literally, literally you could go get a prescription from your doctor to get a pint a month to drink of whiskey. And it was called medicinal. So beforehand, the American Medical Association insisted that, that alcohol is not medicine, which in fact it is not. But during Prohibition, of course, they immediately did a 180 and said, yes, of course, it's medicine. And our doctors demand to be able to prescribe this. This was widely abused. So the person, for example, who uh, provided the, the genesis of the great Gatsby story, Scott Fitzgerald's story, was actually George Remus out of Cincinnati, who was a lawyer, and he read up on all the different, in fact, he is in Boardwalk Empire. He always calls himself in the third person, you know, calls himself Remus. And yes, this yeah, is where I'm him. remembering this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. He was actually born in Germany, so he had a German accent, which they don't show in the show. Okay. But uh, anyways, he figured out all the loopholes that he could exploit through medicinal whiskey, part of which was uh, he bought up a bunch of pharmacies, so that's how he distributed the product, and then he bought up a whole bunch of, of defunct distilleries because they had all the rickhouses. And then he used bribery so he could get way more permits to distribute way more alcohol than he was allowed to. So he made a fortune very, very quickly, but he had to bribe an awful lot of people right. in the Prohibition Bureau to, to allow him to... And he did stuff as well. He had his own gangs like that would stage raids on his own stuff. So he then steal his own stuff so that he could then sell it again. And so it's incredible the stuff that this guy did. Yeah, I remember uh, some of the scenes from Boardwalk Empire. That that's really, they were really kind of sly. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting that when you have something so sweeping and so kind of definitive as a complete prohibition the number of ways that people will find to kind of weasel their way in there and and find ways to kind of buck the trend um, were there any other things like that or was the was the majority of the rest of it kind of people who were doing things below the law mm-hmm. sort of like bootleggers are a great example and rum runners and all, all that scene mm-hmm. was it mostly the rest of it just kind of that yeah a lot of a lot of American society got involved in, in on it because there was so much money to be made untaxed. So you could go to the hardware store and set up, buy all the equipment and set up a still in your bathroom. You'd also have the risk of burning your house down when the, when the thing exploded. But, you know, once a week, the bootlegger would come by and pick up whatever you had made for him and give you cat, hard cash. So yeah. that was very enticing for a lot of Americans, even if they didn't drink. So it wasn't just Appalachia getting involved in the whole moonshine culture. It was everywhere. Uh, out in the rural countryside and also in cities. It was just kind of appearing everywhere. So very quickly, very quickly, we became this nation of scofflaws. It's re- remarkable. Um, the term, by the way, bathtub gin, you might have heard that term before. Yes. Right? Which you don't actually make the gin in the bathtub because you still have to have a still to make the bathtub, to, to make the, the, the gin. Most of the alcohol actually produced during Prohibition was, in fact, industrial alcohol that was repurposed. So all the distillers that were in business making manufactured alcohol, they boomed during this time. And uh, very clever chemists figured out then how to take out the, the, the 
um, to how to take out the denaturing agents out of it so then people could actually drink this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then it was up then to the bootlegger then to cut it, add the flavorings and whatnot. So they'd add juniper flavorings and whatnot. And so during Prohibition, overwhelmingly what the bootleggers were providing was in fact distilled spirits because you could cut it with so much water and it was so much more profitable right. than say producing beer. Um, with the bathtub gin itself, you cut it with water in the bathtub using the spigot. That's where the name comes from. So while you were doing, you're taking here basically your um, your 100% alcohol <laughs> with the flavorings in it and then cutting it with a whole bunch of water yep. in the bathtub and then putting it into bottles for, from there. So hence bathtub gin. Right. And I imagine some of that probably tasted a little bit like a bathtub. Yeah, <laughs> possibly, yeah. Um, for the Smithsonian, we had a program uh, that came out earlier this year for the Smithsonian Channel, and we went over to the New Columbia Distillers, that, mm-hmm. which makes Green Hat Gin. And John Osselton actually made a batch of, of bathtub gin. It was actually pretty good. I got to sample it. I was kind of surprised, but he used good ingredients. I mean, he used... Of course. He didn't use industrial alcohol. He actually had neutral grain spirits mm-hmm. that, that he had made himself. And then, then we added all the different flavorings and so on to it. And it came out kind of pink. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting. And then I got to taste it raw. And it was like, this actually isn't too bad. I'm sure it was a lot worse during Prohibition. I'm sure, yeah. And I definitely want to talk about, you have you have a great story with, with New Columbia Distillers and Green Hat Gin. So I definitely want to get to that story. But while we're on the topic of, I guess, alcohol quality and things that people would sort of do to spirits in order to make some money and still have access to alcohol. What were some things besides bathtub gin that were going on during prohibition and that sort of had an impact on the quality of the spirits and then correspondingly the, the, the types of drinks that we would then make with those spirits. Yeah. So much of the alcohol was this rod gut, rod gut bad. If you're willing to pay, you can certainly get good stuff, but most citizens were buying really nasty stuff. And so oftentimes they had to disguise it with something else. So out of this era comes very, very, very sweet drinks. So people began mixing things with RC Cola and Coca-Cola and whatnot. So, because sugar is a great mask. Mm-hmm. It also will turn you, turns us into a nation of diabetics as well. So Americans, even to this day, we we way too much sugar. It's in everything. I mean, ketchup, mm-hmm. ketchup has got it. Snack foods has it. You know, you're, you're just stunned how much sugar is in everything. Like, this is not healthy for us. And Europeans are stunned by how much, how sweet everything is in the United States when they come here. Desserts. Right. Everything's got sugar in it. Yeah. So this is one of these big side effects. Um, if you ever try Manischewitz, the, the the kosher wine, oh my gosh, it's like drinking jam. Mm-hmm. It's it's disgustingly sweet. I've only had it once and I still remember it. Yeah, it's Concord grapes, which is not a very, that's not a wine grape. It's good for making jelly, but yeah, it's not pleasant, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. So what were the things that people were putting into spirits besides besides sugar, just sugar? Were there any other types of flavorings or additives? It's certainly a lot of the the bartenders had to come up with very novel ways of creating cocktails, but they tended to be on the sweet side mm-hmm. just because they had to be able to mask the flavor of rot gut alcohol. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is a really interesting point because I think when people walk into a cocktail bar, they have this generic conception of the early 20th century mm-hmm. and that's kind of what they walk in with and they say, oh, it's a, it's a cocktail. It's a classic cocktail. And in one sense, the term classic cocktail is useful because it refers to a group of cocktails that existed and then kind of got forgotten 
and then we rediscovered mm-hmm. rather than something that's kind of a new innovation. I, I like the term in that respect, but one of the things that gets lost is the distinction between pre-prohibition cocktails and prohibition era cocktails. Mm-hmm. And I think the the point that you just made really illuminates that the difference between those two styles of drinks is really related to what people had access to during those times. So yes, there were a lot of interesting drinks created during Prohibition. It's not that innovation was dead, it was just people had a little bit less access to certain ingredients. And then of course, another side effect of that is that places other than the United States got to kind of throw their hats into the ring with with the cocktail. So we have the sidecar, mm-hmm. we have, you know, all those cocktails that were invented in Harry's New York bar. Mm-hmm. We, we just mentioned this in, in one of our recent podcasts. We were talking about, um, you know, the importance of other places once America decided to ban alcohol. So it, I like drawing the distinction between pre-prohibition and prohibition era, just because for me, it just reminds me a little bit of some of the economic and logistical realities that were in play at that time. Mm-hmm. Cocktails, like like drinking in general, it's always evolving. Like there's no one static moment where things are going to stay forever. I mean, if you think about your own drinking habits, they've evolved over your lifetime, right? Um, and you'll be drinking something else in five years from now, I guarantee it. You know, it's just, we're all going to evolve and, and our, our habits change. The supply of new products changes and so on. And so certainly prohibition is this big, as economists call it, it's a big moment of exogenous shock where suddenly the, the public is confronted with, okay, you can't get beer anymore. Here's this right good alcohol, go make something with it. And people had to get very clever to try to stomach to drink this stuff, right? Mm. <laughs> so... Yeah, uh, there's a lot of a, a lot of innovation out of it. So yeah, certainly you got the great stuff out of Harry's Bar. If you mm-hmm. can afford a, a, an Ocean Liner ticket to go to Paris, you can have a Scofflaw cocktail or the Three Mile Limits or all the uh-huh. great stuff that comes about during that time. But if you're here in the United States and you can't go to the Twenty One Club or someplace great like that, you're stuck with RC Cola or whatever mm-hmm. you can find off the shelf to mix in with that nasty rot gut that your bootlegger sold you to right. make it palatable. And that that's a lot. Uh, one other thing that I'll, I'll mention before we move on with this topic is that this really brings in, you know, we, we've talked about gender with the kind of sporting fraternity and the temperance movement. We talked about kind of where people are, cities versus country. Do you have the fruit to turn into wine? Do you not? But another divide is certainly the class divide here. Uh, and I, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think prohibition certainly didn't do anything to move things more toward the middle in terms of that. It, it mm-hmm. seemed to push people further in whatever direction they were already trending. Is that is that kind of correct? Most of the enforcement was directed at the working class. The mm-hmm. rich never had to worry about anything. They had great connections. They could fill up their, their cellars full of great product and get a continuous resupply whenever they wanted. They could afford it, right? Mm-hmm. And there were specialty bootleggers that targeted them. Whereas most of the Prohibition Bureau itself targeted speakeasies and places where the working poor tended to go to, to to drink. And so again, the poor become the victims yet again in American society. They're the ones who get targeted for, sure. for being the criminals and not the, not the wealthy. Yeah. Uh, well, so I think we've done a really good job setting up the, the large overall forces that are at work here. And I, I don't know, I think that's really difficult to do. So we've got a lot of the good work done. Can we zoom in on a couple things here? I, I, I think the things that we most associate are obviously bootleggers, uh, and speakeasies with prohibition. I, I think those are the two sort of rock stars of prohibition. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about 
and maybe use some examples here. So I'm thinking maybe the man in the green hat should make an appearance. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, some examples of bootleggers and how they would operate, and then also speakeasies and how those situations operated. Mm-hmm. Cool. So yeah, let's talk about the man in the green hat. And this is really specific to Washington, D.C. itself, although it has national repercussions for when the story finally breaks in 1930. So even during Prohibition, most most of Congress was voting dry, even though most of the congressmen were personally wet in their mm-hmm. private lives. And so starting at the very beginning of Prohibition, uh, there was a U.S. Army veteran who got offered a job. <laughs> His name was George Cassidy. And he had fought as a tanker in France and came back and he couldn't get his old job back working on the railroad or, or in a shoe factory. And one of his friends offered him, hey, can you supply some hooch for a couple of Southern congressmen who were dry congressmen, by the way. So mm. <laughs> he did that. They liked it. And they asked if he'd come back. And pretty soon he had a, he had a following of congressmen. They eventually gave him an office in the Cannon House office building basement. They liked him that much. And so he became the chief bootlegger. There were others as well, but he was the main one. And they, everyone adored George. He was such a great personality. He, they could come down to his office and play cards with him and hang out. <laughs> they could buy a product from him. And it's, it's just astonishing. He bootlegged for Congress for 10 years. He got busted in 1925, um, short sit in jail, and then reopened shop, but this time over on the Senate side because senators were more discreet than congressmen were. Interesting. So, yeah, they would send their staff members to come get product <laughs> rather than coming themselves, unlike the congressman who wanted to come hang out. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he did that <laughs> all the way till February of 1930 when he got arrested for a second time. And at that point, part of his plea deal with the judge was he agreed he would not bootleg any, anymore after that. And then the Washington Post approached him and asked him if he'd be willing to uh, tell his story. So he wrote six front page articles for the Washington Post, the last one of which was published exactly one week before the midterm election. So the Washington Post was a wet newspaper and they wanted to do everything they could to embarrass the dry cause. So again, uh-huh. this this was one week before the wave election of 1930 where Congress wholesale shifted over from this ostensibly dry Republican majority to now an openly wet Democratic majority that was calling for an end to prohibition. Okay. Yeah, and so yeah. again, and this is a big, this is a, a major factor, but the biggest factor, though, was also the Great Depression. This is really what leads to the end of Prohibition. But certainly Cassidy played a role in this by pointing out the hypocrisy of Congress in these articles. He did everything but name names. That's the one thing, he never spelled out who his customers were by name, but he did say in his, in his estimation that four out of five congressmen and senators drank. That's mm-hmm. 80%. Yeah, and in the Senate in 1927, there was a um, there was a columnist in the Washington Post who uh, talked to this one senator who who admitted to him, yeah, you could fit the number of senators who don't drink into a single cab, and I figured out who the three were. It was three men, <laughs> so the, okay. the two Utah senators, and then uh, Senator Morris Shepard from from Texas. He was the one who who made DC go dry. So one of the leading progressives. In, in the house, sorry, in the Senate, mm. but basically those those were the three. <laughs> Everyone else drank. Wow! So we're talking ninety three senators who drank and the other three who didn't. Wow! That's incredible, uh, that's, right? That's crazy. Yeah. So, <laughs> quick question about how bootlegging actually worked. So, with the man in the green hat, was he distributing primarily because his clients were wealthy stuff that was brought in from abroad? That was, for example, I'm thinking of rum runners here who were taking actually, you know. 
legitimate rum up the coast and then distributing it to people? Um, or, or was he also distributing the stuff that was made domestically, kind of illegally? He was probably largely using good stuff. So bourbon was very popular. So was scotch among the congressmen. You know, they, they loved bourbon. Whiskey was the drink of choice among, mm-hmm. among congressmen and senators. Where he got his stuff, so he was basically buying it from wholesalers uh, up and down what's now the Northeast Corridor. So he would actually jump on the train with a couple suitcases. And he, he did mention that he went to New York City, he went to Newark, Delaware, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and he would make day trips, go up there, meet, meet with his wholesalers, and pick up what, what, whatever the customers wanted to get, and he'd haul it back in the suitcases, and then take it all home, and then the next day go to Congress and haul it all in and in the suitcases, and then gotcha. sell it to them. So he so. was he was more like a boutique retailer, where whereas a lot of the folks who were doing these things, you know, you hear stories about people like redesigning their cars and boats and stuff so that they could haul a ton of it. They were mostly wholesaling it to places like speakeasies and, and individuals, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Cassidy had his specialty because he was selling to this elite group, congressmen, mm-hmm. right, who wanted good stuff, and so that's all he would buy was the, the really really good stuff, and then. And again, he had to buy it from these these wholesalers, so it, I'm sure it came with a high, with a hefty price tag. And then sure. he had his markup and and so on. So, but he bought a new car every two years, so he did he did pretty well at doing this. I'm sure he yeah. did. Yeah, and I mean, great marketing because I'm you know politicians can't keep their mouth shut to begin with. So mm-hmm. it's great to great to have a kind of a self you know marketing machine when uh, as soon as you get in there. So yeah, and he never had to carry a gun or anything because his job was very was very secure. He never <laughs> had to worry about someone holding him up or or whatever. So true. Yeah. yeah. So uh, finish the story with with the man in the green hat. How do we now have uh, a product named after it? Yeah, we have in D.C. Uh, a distillery called New Columbia, and they opened up. They were the very first distillery in D.C. in over a century. Mm-hmm. So really remarkable. And uh, John Osselton and Michael Lowe approached me. Uh, they had read uh, in my book Prohibition in Washington D.C., which came out in 2011. They had read the chapter in the book called The Man in the Green Hat, and they really, really liked the chapter. And they, so they, I got an email one day asking, hey, um, we want to you know, meet with you and possibly discuss naming our gin after George Cassidy. We, we want to call it Green Hat Gin. So we met up, we had a coffee, and we chatted about it, and I said, well, I think this is a great idea. However, you're going to want to talk to George's son, Fred, who lives in Fairfax County, just, just west of us. And so I put them in touch, and Fred was over the moon over this idea. He just loved it. So, Good. Yeah, it was really, really cool. Um, the one thing he asked for was the first case. Yeah. So, <laughs> of course. And I, I was going to say, man, I, I was actually just putting myself in the position of like, now if somebody wanted to name a spirit after me, how would I get my get my cut? Yeah. Yeah. He wanted the first case. And, and whenever George, whenever Fred goes over there, they always give him a free bottle yeah, and, totally. and so on. Yeah. So it's, it's really, really cool. And uh, on that particular day, I, I went over there as well on the day of the, the case handover. We all wore green hats, and it was, it was really fun. We had a little bottling party, so we actually got to bottle all the bottles that Fred was going to take home with him. Mm-hmm. So we filled up the bottles, put the labels on them, and then he has the box that says Cassidy case number one. And Beautiful. they all have they're all marked with 0001 on each one of the bottles. Mm-hmm. And then I got a cool picture of the handoff. Nice. So which I included then in my book, uh, the, the, the sequel book called Capital Beer. 
it's a brewing history of, of DC. So very, very proud of that. And the fact that I was there at that moment and, and they got the idea for naming the gin out of my book. So yeah, you, you kind of so, brokered that, which is, which is beautiful. Was, kind, of, kind of like the man in the green hat. Yeah. I, I was happy to, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's been a great business model for them. The family was thrilled about, about this and it's, and it's a great local story. You know, people love, just like they love drinking crap beer where they can go meet a brewer and totally. hear their story about how they made their ale and, and, and whatnot and, you know, what, what went into it. It's not, you know, manufactured beer. It's something that someone actually made by hand. You know, it's really yeah. great. And it's the same thing here with this distillery. So you, you can go there, take the tour of it, do the samples. And it has such a great story and the tie-in with George Cassidy and, you know, Americans as scoff laws and whatnot. So I, I just love it. And, and they make a good product, too. They do. It's uh, it's one of my favorite products. I'll be featuring it in a couple demos that I'll be doing in the next couple weeks. So shout out to John and Michael. Woohoo! Hey, John and Michael. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, of course all the other great DC-based distillers that are that are operating. Uh, many of many of which are are sort of like in that area around mm-hmm. Green Hat. So Ivy yeah, City I'm- is certainly a place where you can go and hit multiple breweries, distilleries, and actually you know chat with these people. So that that's a that's a great point about local. I guess, and and the you know good, a good little pitch for for craft uh, distilling, but yeah, it's like I'm talking to my to my local bitters maker right now. Yeah, I, I, I like how you were <laughs> romanticizing this bottling party. You were mm-hmm. like, yeah, we we got to bottle it, we got to put the labels it's, on. I'm like, man, I hate labeling. Really? Oh, it's, <laughs> it, it's it's totally fun. You know, it's maybe it's a little Mark Twain. Remember, um, remember in Tom Sawyer where Tom Sawyer gets all the other kids to like paint the fence yes. for him. And that's what Green Hat does. I mean, they, New Columbia Distillers, they invite people over for bottling parties. Yeah. And they have this big machine, which we jokingly call the gin cow. Yep. And I've seen the gin cow. <laughs> yeah, so you fill up all the bottles and then you, you have a little assembly line going and mm-hmm. it's fun and everyone's having cocktails. And yes, it's work, but when you get a bunch of your friends together to do it, you know, they basically get volunteers to do that for them, and everyone has a blast. And then everyone, everyone goes home with a bottle of gin, and it's win-win. And for all the of a sudden, you have a dozen new brand ambassadors for your distillery, and everyone's happy. Ex- exactly. You know, so we, we got to have a little bottling party for for your bitters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These are like postage stamp size of labels on your on them, though. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Lab- labeling is is an interesting. Uh, Technology helps so so much. Mm-hmm. What was that the, the other thing? The, the <laughs> one one tip I will also add for anybody who who gets invited to a bottling party: make sure there's a lot of other people who also get invited to the bottling party because it's the only other bottling party I've ever been to was one where me and one other person showed up and yeah. they pulled out a pallet of bottles and they're like, "All right, <laughs> let's get to work." Oh, sheep dip, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So um, interesting. Bottling cocktails. Um, how do we trans? I don't think there's any good transition to a speakeasy, but I, I think part of that is because speakeasies are such a big. They cut a big figure in American culture, and we we certainly romanticize them. And mm-hmm. I we need to come back to speakeasies. In fact, I've been trying very very hard to come back to speakeasies and uh, dedicate at least one, if not more, episodes to them because there's so much to talk about. Mm-hmm. But can you explain speakeasies and sort of how they operated? I guess the, the rules of the speakeasy, whether they're uh, you know kind of set out or implied. There were actually quite a number of different styles of speakeasies. Everyone thinks of in terms of like Boardwalk Empire, the Cotton Club and, and, and whatnot, the 21 Club in New York City and, and whatnot. Most frequently, though, speakeasies were in people's homes. Mm-hmm. So someone simply sold liquor out of the back door, you know, like uh, Alabama and Mississippi long had what were called backdoor cultures. 
whereby, you know, the bootlegger would come up, would deliver your product to your back door. <laughs> so, you know, the police wouldn't see it, mm-hmm. you know. So a lot of that happened simply out of people's homes. A great deal of that certainly happened here in Washington, D.C. Um, but you also have many businesses that would operate speakeasies and legitimate businesses as a front. So, for example, uh, there's a really famous photograph that you can see. If you look up on the Library of Congress, there is the Carl Hamill lunchroom raid. You've probably seen, a, if you've ever watched any programming about Prohibition, you've probably seen a photo of, the, of this raid. You see how the Prohibition Bureau agents are pulling the beer barrels out of the basement. And this was a lunchroom, a legitimate place where you served lunch in the front room. And then if you knew someone, if you were a regular customer, uh, you could either say a password or indicate that uh, you wanted something else or you could go into the, into the little dark room in the back. And then they had a separate room way in the back where you could go back there and there'd be a bartender who could serve you a bottle or something or alternatively sell you a bottle of something. Sure. And then you could walk out of there all packaged up and you mm-hmm. could walk out of there. So I remember a couple years ago on Capitol Hill, there was a... A, ba- a place today, it's called Bukert Saloon. Mm-hmm. It was actually the name of the place back in the 1880s. During Prohibition, it was a sewing machine repair shop. And when, as they were building out the new Bukert Saloon about five or six years ago, the contractor discovered this hidden doorway and found dozens of bottles, which he then threw out. Oh, I was just no. stunned. These are historic bottles. He didn't know what they were, so he just tossed them away and then told the the guy who is building, doing the build out for like, Oh yeah, we, we got rid of the bottles and you're like, this is a place that had a speakeasy behind it, behind the sewing room. They were selling liquor like, Oh my gosh. So they still have the door, which is really cool. But like, yeah, those bottles, dozens of of historic bottles would be now a great little backdrop for that back room that they have. Totally. Like, Oh my gosh, just people are just, you know, people. And I know like nerdy distillers who would want to get the, any contents of those bottles chemically analyzed so that they can figure out what was going into these things. Yeah, I think these were probably empty bottles that they simply hadn't filled, but they're still, they were there in the 1920s. Yeah. You know, they're historic. Right. And they should not have ended up in landfill. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. Okay, so. Stupid contractors. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to clean the place up. Yeah. yeah one they, person's, didn't, they didn't know. One person's know. junk, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so a bunch of different models, and uh, there's, there's, a bunch of speakeasies that kind of popped up. I, I guess we should call them speakeasy style bars because obviously alcohol is now legal once more, but it was sort of popular early on in the craft cocktail resurgence uh, to o- open up a speakeasy style thing, right? It sets an ambiance. It kind of puts people in a certain mood. There's a certain thrill to, you know, finding something that's supposed to be hidden. Mm-hmm. But it's it's interesting that, that that some of these were just in regular everyday businesses, and I think there's a couple of speakeasies here in the D.C. area that that operate using that model. That the, there's a donut franchise called Sugar Shack, mm-hmm. and there's a couple of speakeasies. I know that in Alexandria, right across the river from D.C., there's a place called Captain Gregory's, which is a speakeasy style bar that's uh, behind a in, in the back of a, a sugar shack there. And then in D.C., there's a, a bar kind of owned by that same franchise that's called Nocturne Bar. And that's a little bit more modern, but the the model is still much more that of a, a speakeasy. So those are those are there's a couple of places and there's other note noteworthy speakeasy style places in D.C. as well. Yeah. Yeah. In, in New York City, in the mid-2000s, there got to be so many of these that they be, they became a little gimmicky, so people started calling them speak cheesies. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, th- there's a, this interesting sentiment in New York because there's actually, 
still some speak some actual speakeasies going on you can't call them actual i guess right because it's it's legal but essentially illegal bars mm -hmm. and i've heard audio interviews with people who run these essentially illegal cocktail parties the pop-up cocktail parties and they they actually look down on people who open speakeasy style stuff because it's almost like they're not metal enough it's like yeah you're not legit mm -hmm. you know you're, you're not actually breaking the law therefore you know it, it's a completely neutered experience experience so i i don't certainly know enough about it to take any stand on it but I, it's interesting that there's such a wide range of reactions to the speakeasy i think it speaks to the gravity that it holds as a force in our american history yeah um there was a movie that came out last year, and it was incredibly depressing, but it was called Detroit, and it deals with the riots that take place in, in Detroit, and specifically one incident that takes place at a house where someone's throwing basically a party. They're operating a speakeasy mm -hmm. out of this house, and then the police raid the place, and then things get completely out of hand. Um, you have a couple cops in there who are who are out of control. It's just, it's remarkable. This is a true story, what happens in here. And I think the director was, uh, I think, Catherine Bigelow, who did, um, she did um, uh, Zero Dark Thirty. Okay. Yeah, so she takes these these moments in American history, and it's 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 very dark, a very dark movie. And of course, it's, this is about the African-American community mm -hmm. and what happens then when these white National Guardsmen come in to try to restore order and whatnot. But it has that root, this this party, yeah, that was operating as a speakeasy, and then gunshots were heard, and so on, and just the mayhem occurs from that. Right. Yeah. So obviously, it looms large in American history. Definitely, we're going to return to the speakeasy because I think it, it deserves a, a really full look. Um, but I, I wanted to before we jump into lightning round questions here, see if we could talk about some of these hangover effects of prohibition because you obviously dedicated an entire book to it <laughs> uh i feel like we'd be remiss not to at least mention them i think again this is another topic that could probably and certainly deserve its own episode but in sort of like a high level way can can you talk about some of those hangover effects sure most of our laws come about from 1934 that we have in this country and when prohibition ended there was a great deal of distrust against against alcohol, especially against distilled spirits. And thus, they were heavily, heavily regulated. And lawmakers came up with what was called the three-tier system, which is still with us even today. But the idea there was they wanted to break apart the vertical integration of the alcoholic beverage industry that had existed before prohibition, the saloon culture. And thus, we have three tiers, the producer, the wholesaler, which is where much of the margin is today, and the person who gets to transport the product to market, and then lastly, the retailer, the person who sells it to you, whether that's a bar or a supermarket or here in Virginia, a state-run liquor store. Yay. Yay, like, no. like something in the Soviet Union, you know, when the state sells liquor. Like, what? Yeah. You know, but that's, that's where I got to go. <laughs> it is or indeed. be a scofflaw and cross over to the district and buy things there. Right. In yeah. theory, I would never do such a thing, of course. Totally. No, totally. no, never. Um, <laughs> but a lot of our social attitudes as well, like such as my grandmother, who was you know, a Protestant and was sort of grew up with a stigma around alcohol. And that took generations to basically leach out of American society to where we are, I'm a generation Xer, I think you're a millennial. Uh, we just drink and we don't really offer any kind of apologies for that. It's just part of our culture today. But that mm -hmm. took a long time to kind of get over that. Part of those, of those 1934 laws was like really, really extreme control over alcohol. And it took a long time for consumers to kind of chip away at this. They would go lobby their local city councils, 
county board, state legislatures, and, and so on. And you've seen some of those things chip away over time. For example, blue laws, which forbade alcohol sales on Sundays. You know, um, So now you can have liquor at brunch, and then much, right. much later on, it's actually liquor sales, meaning go to a store to buy it. There was a great deal of um, resistance to that, not necessarily because of temperance, but rather from small businesses that wanted to be closed on Sundays and didn't want to have to compete against Costco. Sure, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm from Massachusetts originally, and and sir, I don't know if they've even changed their blue law. I, I suppose they they may have. Yeah. I honestly don't know. But yeah. when I was growing up in in the you know early to mid '90s, it was certainly no no alcohol on Sundays. All those stores were shut down. Yeah, I think they've 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 liberalized that now today. But Massachusetts has its own issues. For example, uh, chain stores like we're used to here in the D.C. area, going to Trader Joe's, and, you know, they sell everything. If you go to Trader Joe's in California, they can sell liquor mm-hmm. there, too. Uh, Massachusetts has basically effectively banned um, chain stores from having more than three stores from offering beer and wine. And, of course, Trader Joe's has this great wine selection, right? They can only have three stores. And Trader Joe's is based out of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. This is basically a state protection for small businesses who don't want to have to compete against all the other grocery stores. So these, these are one of these things. Effectively, it's anti-competitive. Yes, and Massachusetts yeah. actually does a lot of that. They did that with car insurance. Mm-hmm. They recently, I remember when I yeah. uh, got my driver's license, I had to buy it from like a local, like a mom and pie. I still remember mm-hmm. my insurance agent. Hi, Cheryl. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we got charged so much money for insurance. We were getting raked over the coals for it because of those anti-competitive mm-hmm. laws. So it's, it just kind of goes to show you how these sentiments, you know, like you said, that takes such a long time to leach out of American culture can really affect a lot of things at a macro and micro level. Yeah. And then you get a lobby in place, which wants to protect things as they are. So, mm-hmm. uh, back over the last decade or so as, as, a decade and a half as direct ship wine came to the fore. Everyone went out to California, signed up for a wine club. All the wholesalers were all opposing that because they want their cut. Right. So they were like every single state, and most states now allow it, but they were there lobbying every single legislature like, no, 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 kids are going to get a hold of this wine, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, kids don't drink wine. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, The Supreme Court even mentioned that in their case, Granholm versus Hield, that like, Children are not interested in wine, you know. Right. <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of silly. And same thing for Massachusetts with with the car insurance. Yeah. There's a lobby that will lash out at the legislature, saying, "Don't you dare touch our business." Right. You know, we we provide jobs for people and good incomes and whatnot, and the, so the legislature gets all scared. You know, so it's almost pain, it. it's almost painful to change from so many mm-hmm. for for so many reasons. It's painful to change, and uh, I, I know uh, I have a, I have a lot of friends who who own and operate distilleries in places like Maryland and Virginia. We're lucky in D.C. We get called the quote unquote Wild West of, mm-hmm. of laws because it's not actually like the Wild West. We just don't have to deal with some of the laws that places like Maryland and Virginia have in place. So, for example, in those places, you cannot serve cocktails at your distillery, uh, and I know that these laws are in various kind of levels of change. They're, they're, people are trying really hard to change these laws, and, and they're kind of moving very slowly in the direction of, of that, but there's a there's a really robust bar and restaurant lobby uh, who want this exclusive right to serve cocktails mm-hmm. because it makes them money, and so there's, there's even lobbying at that level um, such that mm-hmm. these distilleries can't serve full cocktails in their tasting rooms, yeah. which is tough. 
it's a, it's a funny thing about capitalism. You know, everyone is in favor of free enterprise until the moment when you have competitors and then suddenly they want the market to themselves. It's, yes. it's, it's human nature, I think, you know, but like, you know, what would Adam Smith say about this? Right. You yeah. Know? If you, if you break, if you zoom out just a little bit, if, and if you, if you kind of take your personal, um, desires and, and motivations out of it. And then, then you kind of realize that, wow, okay, this is, this is a, a more complicated issue. Um, so besides these trends that, that you've, that you've mentioned, are there any other little hangovers, um, that, that you want to mention before we jump into the lightning round? Um, what else could I mention? I think we covered most of them here, but social attitudes, regulations we're still living with today. Mm-hmm. And, um, and laws that are on the books and then just the gradual chipping away of it by, by consumers who want more freedoms. So that's, that's my quick little summary of it. So, yeah. and, and, and so my, my little point of advocacy for you, the listener basically is if you're not happy with your local laws, there were, if you, if you think they're too restrictive, you have a choice about this. You can speak up your legislature, your representatives will listen to you, whether it's a city council or your state assemblyman, whatever, speak up. Sure. And most states at this point are happy to support their local distillers and winemakers and whatnot because it's jobs and it's making money for the state and it's local. It helps out the local economy. And so like, like in Virginia, they, they are falling over themselves to help out local breweries open up, you know? So when, when all the local breweries came about finally and said, Hey, um, we would love to be able to sell pints and growlers. Can you make that happen? Boom. The yeah. state legislature changed the law to allow it. Ten years ago, they would not have even considered that. But suddenly, mm-hmm. it's like, holy cow, we have hundreds of breweries now. Oh yeah, they're make, they're creating jobs and tax revenue. Of course, you can sell growlers and, and pints now at your site. We we'd love to have you do that, right? Totally. But totally. you got to so you got to speak up though as consumers. It's really really important. The legislatures will listen to you. Yeah, they really will. Yeah. So speaking of that change, right? The change that's happened recently and is still continuing to happen. My I guess my last question. We talked a lot about history here. Is there anything looking into the future that you have in terms of thoughts on where American, I guess, drinking culture in general is headed and maybe how that maps on in terms of the, how the rest of the world drinks? Because we've been talking about ourselves sort of in a vacuum here. We haven't really looked too, too hard at what other countries were doing while America was doing this prohibition thing. Um, but, but what are your thoughts on the future? Are you optimistic or is there maybe some problems down the road? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, no one has a crystal ball, myself included. So I, I would never have guessed that the man who's in the Oval Office right now would have got actually gotten in. So, yeah. um, yeah, I was wrong on that count. So <laughs> history is going to take its own course. Karl Marx was wrong as well about the proletarian revolution. That didn't happen. Yeah. You know? So um, I, I'm always hesitating to make future guesses because it's just, it's Kentucky windage is all it really is, you know? But that said, I mean, we are, I, I will say confidently, we are a drinking society. Americans are. Over, overwhelmingly, two-thirds of adults drink alcoholic beverage. I don't think I don't think that's going to change at all, despite even like the latest research around health and, and that kind of stuff that's come about. Um, I wrote the Prohibition uh, Hangover. It came out nine years ago, and I kind of provided a summation up to that point of where the public health debate was around. Since then, there's a new evidence that's come, come around and basically pointed out, I mean, the World Health Organization, for example, says there is no safe level at which you can drink alcohol. That said, there's also no safe level for you to cross the street or to ride your bike. There's mm-hmm. always going to be risk everything that you do. Now, the risks that are entailed, they've much better quantified with them. They, they've basically largely debunked the health 
the healthy side of alcohol. We've all kind of grown up with, oh yeah, a glass of wine a day may or may not be healthy, but although it does certainly does help out your cardiovascular system, but there's a whole bunch of side effects, uh, colon cancer, mouth cancer, throat cancer. I mean, sure. there's a whole alcoholism, liver. There's a whole lot of bunch of bad stuff comes with it. That even one drink a day does heighten those risks. That said, those are long-term risks and they tend to be for the society rather than for the individual. Mm -hmm. And that's what all these latest studies have really pointed out. So you have to look at your individual risk. I choose to drink. I, know, I understand what the risks are. Mm -hmm. They are very, very low risks ultimately. Yes. Um, and okay, I don't drink and drive. That's That deals with that risk right away. But okay, yeah. could I get colon cancer? That's a possibility, you know? So that said, you know, I mean, most people, of course, look at more the... The, the here and now. I mean, why why people smoke cigarettes, which is gross. So mm -hmm. Pardon pardon me, but you know, because they enjoy the cigarette right at that moment. Same thing. You get home from work, you want a beer right now. Right. You don't think about the long term health consequences of that. You're like, ah, oh, beer would taste so good right now. I want one. Yeah. Um, and I'm gonna have one. You know, damn the torpedoes. Mm -hmm. So it's the short term versus the long term, and I don't think that's gonna change. Most Americans. Most people in general, it's human nature. You, you go for the, the gratification of what you get right now at the moment, not how is this going to impact things, you know, 10 or 20 years from now in your health. Totally. You'll deal with it then, you know. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the health side of things is very complicated. Obviously, not, no, no one here is a doctor and we're not making recommendations. But I do I do agree with you when you say that, uh, you know, America is a drinking culture. That's why we're having this conversation. That's why prohibition was such a problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think... I at least am optimistic. You're mm -hmm. right. There's no crystal balls. We don't know what's going to happen in terms of alcohol. We don't know where popular sentiment is going to swing and how that's going to affect some of these regulations that we've talked about. But I at least am optimistic because I I, I get to interact with a lot of these people who are making and, and selling um, and, and then creating cocktails with some of these amazing spirits. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'm really happy with where we're at. And, I, and even the progress that I've seen in the short time that I've been in this industry is is really encouraging. Yeah, I, I am as well, actually. It's I, Americans are not going to stop, you know, touring wine country out in Napa and Sonoma. It's just too beautiful. And right. coming back with a case of wine, it's, it's just, that's, that's not going to stop. We're crazy about our local brew pubs, and we're going to still keep drink, still going to those places and playing, playing cornhole and taking the kids and, and whatnot. Totally. I don't, I don't think that's going to change. Um, what has certainly changed over, you know, if if the past is any kind of predictor of the future, we are certainly drinking better quality products. Um, and that kind of went along with the whole foodie movement. That the fact that so many of these good ingredients, people want to know where they're produced, and they want to know, they want better flavors. And they're more about quality than they are set necessarily about drinking swill beer or, or whatnot. So, you know, the Bud Lights and the Miller Lights of the, of the world continue to decline. They've been declining for a long time, whereas crap beer keeps growing and crap cocktails keeps growing as well because people are, especially as you get a little bit older, you can't drink like you used to drink. Mm -hmm. It's not about getting drunk anymore. It's about enjoying the experience. Right. And then you're like, you know what? Okay, I go out now. I have two beers. I allow myself to have two drinks. Because I, I do have to work the next day, you know, sure. you, you know, I cannot afford to be hungover, you know. So you kind of, you know, it's part of growing up is knowing where your limits are. And and thus you drink better stuff than drinking the cheap swilled for the sake of getting drunk. Um, that's been a long-term trend, and I think that's going to continue. Yeah. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. And so I think with that, with that little nice little... uh optimistic note on, on quality continuing to improve. We'll um, head on to some of these lightning round questions. Sound sure. good? Sure. We like lightning. 
Yes. What is your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something that you're more recently obsessed with? Cool. So I've got actually two here to talk about. Well, my favorite is the Manhattan. Just love a little rye whiskey. Just have in really good vermouth. I love, love using Dolan because mm-hmm. it's such a, such a great vermouth. You can drink that straight up or stick an ice cube in it. And it's just, oh, love it. I get frick lumped. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really nice light vermouth it's not mm-hmm. it's not too over the top yeah it's, it's french vermouth which is different than italian vermouth mm-hmm. so yeah it's, it's it's a really wonderful product so the manhattan's my go-to I, I just love it it's easy to make i just i just cringe though when i go out to bars and you see a bartender shaking it i'm just like no it's it's a cocktail meant to be stirred otherwise you shake it it gets all cloudy and you get ice crystals in it and so on but so stir your Man- manhattan's folks um, the other one I love, I love the flavor for it. It's a little more complicated to make, but it's called the Scofflaw cocktail. Okay. And this is a cocktail that come about, comes about in Harry's Bar in 1924 when the word Scofflaw was invented after a national competition to come up with a word to name those lawbreakers. And this was, <laughs> this was uh, sponsored, this national competition, by a man named Dulcever King, who was a Harvard graduate and who was so upset at seeing all the drinking going on at Harvard during Prohibition. So at the fourth anniversary of the start of Prohibition, he sponsored this contest to come up with a word. It had to start with the letter S, and two people came up with the word, the prize word. It was a $200 prize, okay. and the word was scofflaw. It's an ingenious word. Just break it down. Someone who scoffs at the law. And that has been part of our national culture, that word, ever since. I love it. Like, yeah. you see someone jaywalk, you're like, you scofflaw, right? It's a great word. And a week later, the scofflaw cocktail was invented in Harry's Bar in, in Paris. And what, <laughs> what are the ingredients of the scofflaw? It has uh, rye whiskey in it, dry vermouth, which is kind of unusual, lemon juice. And you're like, oh, uh, what? And then the key ingredient, besides the rye, <laughs> is grenadine. Mm. Yeah, it's a very unusual cocktail. You think, like, those things don't quite go together, right? And it actually kind of turns out very pink, a little darker pink than a Cosmopolitan. But it is delicious. Oh, my gosh, is it good? And I have that recipe in Prohibition in Washington, D.C. I actually have 11 recipes in the, in that, um, in the book that all came about from D.C. and from Prohibition itself. The key thing I'm going to tell you about grenadine, it's really important. You can go buy it off the shelf. It's not as good, though. It's too sweet. Mm-hmm. You can go make your own. It's pretty simple. If you go to the store and buy that Palm Wonderful, it's pomegranate juice. And that's actually what grenadine is. It's a mixture of 50-50 pomegranate juice and simple syrup. Mm-hmm. And simple syrup is simply equal amounts of water and sugar. You boil the water, take it off the stove, let it sit, add the sugar, stir it in. Voila, you've got simple syrup. And then you mix that equal amounts, grenadine with your simple syrup, and voila, you've got a fantastic grenadine you can now use for this cocktail. And having something like that makes a noticeable difference over one of the store-bought grenadines, which are way too sweet. Totally. Yeah. Total agreement there. Yeah, so we'll um, we'll post the recipe for the Scofflaw as well as the, well, I guess we won't post the recipe for the grenadine. But what I will say is head over to modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast and check out our homemade syrups episode. If you're thinking about doing something like a grenadine, there's a lot of good technical tips there. It's one of our bar cart foundations episodes. So you can also just click on the foundations button on the podcast page and it'll filter out all those bar cart foundations episodes for you. So it's a great little way to, if you want a cool project, a little DIY thing to do over the weekend, just head on over there and do that. And we have a lot of good resources 
coaches like it. So um, I know what I'm doing this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> and right now, I feel like we're in this like beautiful transition between summer and fall. So I think a nice scoff law is, you know, with the, the darkness of the rye and the brightness of the lemon juice is kind of like an interesting thing to be drinking right now. Mm-hmm. I think year round is a nice cocktail. It is. It yeah. is. It's a nice cocktail. And, um, you know, especially any, any, dark spirit cocktail that has that nice brightness of citrus tends to be very versatile in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you could have a cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would that be? H.L. Mencken, the, right. bar, the bard of Baltimore. He was, yes. he was such a wonderful crank. Yeah, we talked yeah. about this guy earlier. He yeah. was the one stockpiling the booze in his basement. Yep, yeah. <laughs> and he was... Uh, a second-generation German-American and an atheist, really an outlier for his time, uh, one of the great literary critics of the early 20th century. He died in 1956, but he saw prohibition for what it was. This was a, uh, an evangelical movement to try to, get, to try to reform Americans, and he did not want to be reformed. <laughs> yeah. And so he was openly disparaging about prohibition throughout his entire writing. Um, after prohibition ends, he referred to prohibition as, quote, and this is in all caps, the 13 awful years. <laughs> so but, so I, I just love the guy. He was such a hilarious crank, and he was very direct in his writing. Because just when you hear how he just like excoriates people in, in his writing, but very funny at the same time. I mean, he, would, he was a great storyteller, and he was very critical. He hated, he hated all politicians. Um, I would love to see him if he was alive today to talk about today's current current environment Mm -hmm. he would have a couple words to say about this i'm sure yeah he does have a reputation for directness uh kind of a very clean prose writer and um yeah he's i i think we've we've had maybe one or two other folks uh mention hl Mencken certainly as we've we've done some interviews but um what, if, if you had to like hypothetically set up a situation with this guy, wh- where would you go? What would you drink with him? Did he have a drink of choice? I would probably go up to New York City over to Hoboken where all the ocean liners were because mm-hmm. he figured out early on during Prohibition that all the, all the ships were coming in, the British ships and whatnot, and, they were, and the German ships, and they were bringing beer with them. So he figured that early on <laughs> to go make friends with the crew members, and he could come on. You know, three or four nights a week, he, he could be drinking good German beer on ocean liners. So sure, yeah. he was up in New York City all the time, going back and forth between Baltimore and New York City, where he was editing the Smart Set, his uh, his magazine, while he was also working for the Baltimore Sun Papers. Yeah, if today, if prohibition was a thing that got resurrected, which hopefully it never will, I can just see BuzzFeed coming out with the article like 13 prohibition hacks that everyone needs <laughs> yeah. to know. And then that'd be like number five, <laughs> find the ocean liners. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Cool. Yeah. That'd be, yeah, we'll have to move down to Fort Lauderdale in Baltimore or, you know, yeah, I guess they still come into New York city, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that's a cool answer. I love the, I love that ocean liner detail. Yeah. So before we let you tell everybody about where they can find your books and how they can learn more about you and the the tours. If you could give somebody advice about how to approach prohibition from, I guess, a a self-teaching or an educational perspective. Let's say somebody's out there, they've listened to this, and they've kind of been turned on by the the high-level details that we've been mentioning. They want to take a deep dive. They want to just get lost in prohibition. What would you recommend in terms of resources, books, approaches? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of books about this. A really good book came out, uh, gosh, eight years ago uh, by Daniel Okrent called Last Call. 
and it's a really, really good history. And he did a lot of original research about prohibition itself. So uh, even I, I know a lot about prohibition. I, I still found quite a quite a number of really good nuggets that he uncovered that I didn't know about beforehand. So that, that's a great source to start with. Certainly, there's there's my book, The Prohibition Hangover, which really looked about Americans after prohibition ended and how we got to the point where we are today, where two thirds of us drink and we really don't consider drinking a sin anymore. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then of course there's lots of different guidebooks about prohibition and, and whatnot. So, you know, like my book about prohibition in, in DC, which, you know, takes a, a tongue in cheek look at, at how Washingtonians, uh, and their lack of response to prohibition, right? Sure. <laughs> so they thought the city was going to be the model dry city for the country, but we ended up with 3000 speakeasies and, and whatnot. So, yeah. um, you can certainly drink your way through prohibition history. You know, every, every city <laughs> probably has these, you know, their versions of speakeasies or slash speak cheesies that yeah. opened up over the last decade or so. Those are kind of fun to go to. And you know, the, you got the bartenders with the twirly mustaches and the suspenders and the funny ties. And it, it's really fun to go to those, but generally those bartenders actually are really good bartenders because they learned their skill set working in the kitchen. So they're looking for the fresh ingredients and what's going to make a really good flavorful cocktail. Mm-hmm. And they're really great inventors of cocktails. So not only are you going to find those cocktails from that era, but they're always trying to one-up each other with new inventions. So we are living right now really in a golden age of drinking. So we've never had better choices than we have right now. If you're a drinker and in the world history at this exact moment, it's incredible. You can have the best cocktails ever made right now, made with fresh local <laughs> farm-to-table ingredients. It's incredible. And the the beer choices you have and the wines that are being made in all 50 states it's just jaw-dropping the choices we have so never been a better time to be a drinker than right now really agreed agreed and we'll certainly link to those books and and recommendations in the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast i will also mention that pbs has i believe a three-part documentary on prohibition that i was able to check out I don't remember where it was. It might have been on YouTube. I, I don't think that's a reliable place to find it, but I do remember. But PBS will sell you the, the the DVD if you still have a DVD player, and that's actually based off of Daniel Oakman's book. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was really good. Uh, I, if you have Amazon Prime, it might have been on Prime Video for a mm-hmm. while. That might have been where yeah. I saw it, uh, but definitely look for it, and I think that's a, a, not a logical next step. If this was an episode that you enjoyed, maybe head on over there, spend a little bit more time with Probe, and then I think you'll really kind of be excited by it. Yeah. Can I make a, a last pitch for... So I've got this book coming out very shortly uh, called The Great War in America, World War One and its Aftermath. And I've got a whole chapter that deals with all the unintended consequences of the war. And in those, I, I focus on four key events. Uh, we, have, we had huge race riots in the summer of 1919. We had the nation's first Red Scare. So not after World War II, but rather after World War One. They thought the Bolsheviks had arrived on our shores and were going to turn all the workers red. That actually didn't happen, but they feared it. Uh, women got the vote in 1920. And lastly, I talk about prohibition. So I've got a section called Prohibition Begins. Mm-hmm. And it just talks about how the temperance movement used the moment of the war to foist prohibition upon the country. And I end that, that section with a great quote from H.L. Mencken about how he, about basically, okay, prohibition is here now. And uh, this is the equivalent of, of rot gut of, uh, gee, now we have to eat hot dogs and sandwiches rather than having, you know, roast beef and whatnot. But given where we are, let's give more special attention to the, uh, <laughs> to the sandwich and also to the dog, he, he says. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. 
Um, so let's talk about your books really quickly. Where can people purchase them and, um, you know, where generally they available to, and like, where can people learn more about them? Read the dust jacket, so to speak. Yeah. Um, certainly amazon.com has got uh, all seven of my books that are up there. And again, my name is Garrett Peck, uh, two R's and two T's. And uh, so you can find them up there. I do have an Amazon page up there. If you just search for me, it lists all, all my books. Um, also, of course, I encourage people to go to your local bookstore and ask for the books. I know everyone loves Amazon and so on, but it's also, it's also, it's, it's created a lot of pressure on the local independents where you go have an opportunity to go speak with people who actually know about the books rather than just do online shopping just for your discount. Um, so I love going to local bookstores and supporting your, your local independents. They provide a lot of jobs, by the way. So kind of consider that. Yes, you're going to pay a little bit more for the book, but you're getting the experience of talking to someone who actually can recommend a good book for you. And you're putting food on the table for an awful lot of people by supporting your local bookstore rather than going to book, buy the book online. Right. So. And, and really, these people, folks, are English majors. And I think we really need to take pity on them because they made a really <laughs> bad decision. Um you know, four years ago at least. And so, yeah. Some of them are philosophy majors too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying this as a guy with a poetry degree. So, um, I get it. I feel it. Uh, support your local independent booksell booksellers. And the nice thing is if you want to do, do a solid for an author, a lot of times if somebody comes in and requests a book, the bookstore isn't just going to order one copy. They might order multiple copies, which is, which is great for the people who are writing the books as well. So a really solid all around move that you can do if you, if you have a really good independent bookseller. And of course, we're going to link to all the places where you can check those out over on the show notes page. Mm -hmm. If people want to learn more about you, um, actually quick sidebar, the tours, are those sort of on a rolling basis and still active? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm actually about to retire from my day job. So uh, Congrats. I'll, be, I'll be a 50 year old, well, soon to be 51 year old retiree. Uh, I don't call it retirement though. It's, it's the next chapter because right. I, I enjoy work too much. So I'm going to go off and be a full-time author and tour guide. At least that's the plan. Um, so, uh, I've got a whole bunch of tours I lead. I got, I've got about 15 tours and developing more in the Washington DC area. So I, I, I lead a lot of tours through the Smithsonian Associates. Also politics and prose are wonderful, fantastic. One of the top 10 local bookstores in the country. It's, it's just a fantastic bookstore and it's really a community center. They do all kinds of great events and whatnot. And I lead tours through them. So very, very proud to be a supporter of my local bookstore. And, uh, yeah, um, you can go online. I've got a webpage, uh, www.garrettpeck.com. And I've got a, a list of all the different tours. They've got quick little descriptions of them and so on. There's also a contact me feature, so you can find me up there. I'm on Twitter, but I'm not really on Twitter. Twitter is so political. Oh, barf. People yeah. getting fights over the stupidest stuff, you know. That's so. why Modern Barkhart stays on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. And you have pretty products. So, <laughs> for, for example, I'm looking here at the Frontier uh, the Frontier Cespedes uh, Bitters, which has, you know, the Zia sun symbol, which is the symbol of New Mexico. And yeah. Just, just love it. It's great. Beautiful. Yeah. Instagram well, that. Yeah, totally. So um, we'll have, again, all this information and more over on the show notes page. Um, Garrett, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. And hopefully um, we can maybe do a round two at some point. That sounds wonderful. Thank you, Eric. And thank you all the listeners for tuning in today. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page 
at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, historical insights by Garrett Peck, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.